Amen. And amen to that. I love that song. That's our prayer that, that God would show up, that he would come, that we'd be expectant for him to come. I don't know about you, but if you um, have ever been in a situation or a season where you have no idea what's next, I think there's very few things that are more alarming than when you find yourself in the dark night of the soul or you have a decision in front of you that you have no idea what to do or you, you find yourself in a situation in your family or in your life and you're just like, how in the world did we end up here? I think that is so challenging when we find ourselves in those situations. And it's awesome because often in those moments when we can actually are humble enough because we've gone to the end of our own wisdom, of our own discernment, of our own friends, of our own finances, and we're finally willing to go, okay, God, what is going on? Where are you? What in the world do you have for me? And what's so fun is every now and then, right, God shows up and, uh, or we get some sort of uh, illumination. Sometimes this happened to us around a Thanksgiving dinner table where we were, we're talking with our family. And all of a sudden I find out some new fact about my mom or my dad or my grandparent. I'm like, that's why we were raised this way, right? That's why we got to this situation. It wasn't like, it didn't just, just happen. Like there were certain things that happened long before I ever knew. And I could look back and have this epiphany and go, oh, that's what this thing was, right? And that is this word. It's this word, epiphany. I love the, the, the dictionary definition. It says this, a, a usually sudden manifestation or perception of the essential nature or meaning of something. The essential nature of meaning of something. Because so often we're just trying to figure it out. Like we think we're super smart and we can just figure it out, but we cannot figure it out. But every now and then we get these epiphanies, right? Somehow God shows up and we get the essential nature of something and it changes everything. Now, this movie super dates me, but I actually think because of the epiphany is why this is such an incredible movie. But way back in 1980 was the greatest movie of all time, Empire Strikes Back. And there was the greatest epiphany of all time, right? Luke, I mean, Darth Vader looks out to Luke and what does he say? I am your father, right? Like that is the thing. That line, that's 45 years ago almost. Isn't that crazy? That's stupid how long ago that is, right? It's like my dad going, let's watch Casablanca. I'm like, no, thank you, right? <laughs> but what's so incredible about this epiphany is when that happened, people's minds were blown. Like Star Wars, great movie. But all of a sudden this epiphany happens and all of a sudden you're like, wait, what was I just watching beforehand? And you went back and you watched episode four and you're like, wait, that's your father? What's going on? You're, and you're, you're mesmerized by the story and you want to understand the story. So it totally reframes everything that happened up to that point. It changes everything that happened moving forward. And what's wild is it was such an incredible epiphany that Lucasfilms made this gigantic fortune, right? This empire that Disney bought for what, like $4 billion in like 2012, that it's such a big, uh, at franchise and endeavor that my son still is watching and or whatever, right? Like they're still making relevant content because it captured people's imaginations in such a huge and a profound way, right? There was a true epiphany. Well, we use epiphany all the time, but epiphany is actually about the Magi. The epiphany is a Christian holiday. It happens on January 6th. For 1,400 years, Christians have celebrated in more liturgical churches on January 6th, epiphany, the Magi coming to worship Jesus. Because these Magi, these Gentiles coming from a distant land and coming and bowing down before Jesus changes the whole story. It was the big reveal. 
And so as we wrap up our time going through the Magi's journey, that's what we're going to look at this morning was this big reveal of the Magi. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 2, and we will conclude after four incredible weeks of this story, going through 10 whole verses. We'll be all done. Okay, so here we are. Matthew chapter 2, starting in verse 9. So after they had heard the king... This is the Magi, right? The, the Magi, Jeff preached about this last week. The Magi come, they go to King Herod. Um, and so after they had, they had heard the king, they, the Magi, went on their way. And the star that they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. So when they saw the star, they were overjoyed. And on coming to the house, they saw the child with, with his mother Mary. And they bowed down and they worshiped him. I love how Jeff preached last week, right? That, that all of a sudden they had this epiphany. This is the true king. The natural response when we come to the true king is they bowed down and worshiped him. And then they opened their treasures and they presented him with these gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And having been warned in, a, warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. And as we wrap up our, our story about the Magi, we want to understand this epiphany. And if you only saw one moment of Empire Strikes Back and, and you find out that Luke, I mean, Darth Vader's Luke's dad, you're like, oh, that's great. But what makes it incredible is when you understand how that fits in the context. And so in order to understand what in the world the Magi were doing, why they actually get their whole uh, Christian holiday, we need to go all the way back. So um, we're going to go back and tell you the big story. So 2,000 years, right, before the Magi even show up, God, Yahweh, shows up to Abraham in the middle of this place called Ur, right? He's out there with his sheep. He has a little family. God shows up to him and says, you, I want you to leave this place and go to a land that I'm going to tell you, and I'm going to give you this land. You are going to be an incredible people. And in fact, I'm going to bless the whole earth through you. All the stars in the sky, all the grains in the sand are not even remotely enough compared to the amount of descendants that I'm going to give through you. So Abraham takes his family and they move, um, they head towards Palestine. Okay, so they get there. And uh, there's a whole story that happens there. They end up in Egypt. They end up in slavery. And, uh, and while they're in slavery, right, it's like 500 years later, while they're in slavery, um, God delivers them. God delivers them out of slavery through the Red Sea into this promised land. But before they get to the promised land, they're in this desert, right? So they're in the desert. And while they're in the desert, God finally is like, hey, now think about this. Like we understand, we have the Bible. We've been around church for a long time and God's still invisible and still hard to understand. Imagine how it was for ancient people. And they just have these stories around the campfire and they're trying to figure out who is this God? Well, they all of a sudden saw God move and deliver them out of Egypt, out of slavery. And now they're in this desert and sure enough, on the scene is Moses. Moses is the one who does all this. And Moses goes up to Mount Sinai and is the first prophet of God. Moses is the first prophet. And what that means is a prophet is somebody who goes and they speak the word of God. They describe who this invisible God, they tell about what God wants for them. They sometimes will tell the future, right? Moses is the very first prophet of God. And through Moses, God delivers the Torah, the law. It says, this is who God is. This is who you are, and this is how I long for you to live. He's the very first prophet. 
Well, if you know about the Torah, right, while they're happening with that, while they're explaining all the rules and regulations, part of what they explain is this God is a holy God. He's an all-consuming fire. He is holy and perfect. And because he's so holy and perfect and we are sinful and broken, our sinfulness, we cannot be in the presence of God because he is so holy. He'll just wipe us out. But God longs to be in relationship with us, right? All the way back to Abraham, God longs to be in relationship with his people, to be this people that are going to be a testimony to the whole world. That's his heart for us. So God comes up with this incredible plan and says, not only am I going to have a prophet like Moses who's going to tell you everything you need to know, I'm going to also establish these priests through Moses' brother Aaron. And these priests are going to be the people that are going to stand in between this holy, perfect God and this rebellious people who just keeps screwing up all the time. And they're going to stand in this middle gap and they're going to offer sacrifices. They're going to offer animal sacrifices over and over and over again. They're going to drench the, the, the temple and the ornaments around the temple and all the sacred things with blood to symbolize that God longs to be in relationship with his people who are broken and sinful. And there needs to be some way to cover that payment. And so priests were the people who stood in the gap. And so ever since uh, Levi, I mean, ever since uh, Aaron began being a priest, there's been priests all the way through the Jewish history, right? He was the very first one. Well, 500 years later, right, they, they enter the promised land. And even then, right, they have the law, they have prophets, they have the priests helping them have a good relationship with God. But because we're just humans and we just cannot get our imaginations in order, God the whole time is like, I'm going to be your God. You're going to be my people. I'm going to be your king. You're going to be my people. And we're like, no, no, no. Like, we want our own king. And God's like, oh, are you kidding me? You, this is not a good idea. And like, we want a king. We want a king. And finally, God's like, you know, like a, like a parent with a spoiled kid finally like, fine. You want a king, here's your king, right? And so they begin to have a king, and they have Saul, but ultimately they have David, right? David's the second king, and David is like the pinnacle king. And sure, David was a dirtball, and he did all sorts of weird, messed up stuff. That is for a whole different sermon. But one of the things that was wild about David is he ruled uh, in the the highest peak of of the Jewish um, empire, right? David and Solomon was like the peak of their empire. And David loved God. Now, he's a deeply flawed person, and thankfully he had priests and prophets who were helping him keep in line, but he loved God, and he ruled Israel. Now, really soon after that, in fact, his grandson, by the time he ruled, Israel split in half. A hundred years later or so, um, they get conquered, and then for the next 400 years, they're conquered and conquered and back and forth, and there's this broken people. So now by the time that Jesus is born, there's this Jewish people, and they have these memories of a prophet like Moses— and a priest like Aaron, and a king like David. And there's this picture of of how God wanted things to be. When God originally said to Abraham, you're going to be my people, and I'm going to be your God. There was those pictures, those were glimmerings, but they were living under oppression, and they were just beat down, and they just had this hope, but that hope was just out there in the wilderness. They were longing for an epiphany. They were longing for God to fully show up. And that is what happens when the Magi show up. The Magi make the big reveal. This is the big reveal that the Magi make, that Jesus is the ultimate king, that Jesus is the ultimate priest, and that Jesus is the ultimate prophet. There was this uh, 
I guess a, a Roman bishop in the, uh, in the province of Syria in like 314 or whatever. And he was like the first scholar who basically said, oh my goodness, Jesus is the, fulfilled these offices. Jesus was like the person who was the culmination of these offices that helped tell the story of God, that, that helped the way that God and God's people functioned happen. Jesus was the, was the culmination of that, that Jesus was the ultimate prophet like Moses, was the ultimate priest like Aaron, and was the ultimate king in the line of David. And so that is the big reveal. And that's why the church for 1400 years has celebrated Epiphany, because on Epiphany, they realize that Jesus, this little baby, oh, the little baby, is not just this little baby, but is the culmination that what began with Abraham to be a blessing to the whole world. These Gentile kings come to worship the true revealed king. And what's so fun is what, are, what, what, are the, what do they give? When the, when, the, when the Magi come, they give three gifts. What are they? They are gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And this is what is so awesome. Okay, so the first is gold. And we think of gold, this is easy, right? Gold is a gift for a king. That makes sense, right? This is the newborn king. You're gonna bring your most incredible riches. And so here you go. These, gold is it. It's the most valuable substance. And so they scrape together this gold and they go and they lay it down at the foot of Jesus. And what's so interesting, and, and Jeff's sermon last week was really challenging because you realize we don't want a king. Like we want someone to be in charge and take care of the hard stuff, but we do not want a king. We do not want people telling us what to do. We do not want someone ruling our life. We are the rulers of our own life. And so that is a hard challenge. And we see Christmas, especially this baby Jesus, like Jesus is so kind and so welcoming, which is also true, but Jesus is also the king. And these, these, these magi knew it, right? So they go and they bring gold. And every now and then, I always, I'm actually kind of a discipline, is I want to make sure that I, I get a big picture of who Jesus is. And so every now and then I read through Revelations, not because I want the end of the world to happen or anything like that, but Revelation has this incredible picture of who Jesus really is. Because we see the baby Jesus, we see kind of the hippie Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, we see the crucified Jesus. And that's for our sake, so that we know that Jesus is full of grace and mercy. But listen to this. This is Revelations chapter one, um, verse 12. It says this. This is John. He has this vision of Jesus in his true state. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven gold lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like the son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as the snow. And his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand, he held the seven stars and coming out of his mouth was a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all of his brilliance. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Listen, I love that Jesus is approachable. I love that Jesus is kind and merciful and long-suffering and makes all the space, wants to be our friend, wants to be our homeboy. Like, I love it. But we also cannot forget that Jesus is the king, worthy of worship. And if we are not in awe, going, falling down as dead, at least sometimes in some part of our spiritual diet, then we are missing the full picture of who Jesus is. And these magi helping us give the epiphany, beginning with gold, a gift for the true king. 
All right, so that's the first gift, gold. What's the second gift, you remember? Frankincense. I don't even know what frankincense is. So I had to spend like all week restudying. Well, frankincense is the spice that is used in temple worship. And priests, all in every religion, right? One of the things that priests do is they burn incense and they, to, because incense is a way of, it was a way of waking up the gods. It was a, it was a picture of, of, of our prayers, of God hearing our prayers. Like it's, a, it's an important spice for all religions everywhere. But what's so incredible because Jesus is the true priest. He's the highest priest. How fun that this gift isn't just for any sort of priestly worship, but it's for a very unique kind of priestly worship. That Jesus is the high priest. And what that means is if there's this holy God who is this all-consuming fire who lives in a throne of heaven, who has a double-edged sword coming out of his mouth, and then there's us all the way over here who are broken and sinful and rebellious and have all sorts of bad habits and addictions and sin that's just, ugh, like we just know we're unclean. And yet God longs for us to be with him. Well, for 1,500 years, the Jewish priests have been, you know, sacrificing animals and sacrificing animals. And what I think is wild is for some reason in our very nature, God, like the way all humans are made in the image of God, every religion, everywhere in the world, there were priests because something in our very core longs to worship God and knows that we are broken and sinful and don't, aren't worthy of God's presence. Like all humans everywhere in the world knows that. And Jesus solved the problem of having continual sacrifice over and over again by saying, you know what? I am going to be the once and for all priest. I'm going to be the high priest. And my sacrifice, being the lamb of God, the one true lamb, will cover all of humanity's sins once and for all. I love this passage in Hebrews chapter 4. It's just this beautiful picture beginning in verse 14. It says this, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the son of God. So there's all these little priests and every year there was a high priest. And now Jesus is the great high priest. He says, let us hold firmly to the faith we possess. Sorry, the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weakness, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. And what I love about this is it's easy to think, oh, the priests, they're the special people. They're the holy people. They're the ones who stand on this side of God and they'll do the work for all the, the lowly people. But no, Jesus is not like that. Jesus has been tempted in every way. He made it possible. He did everything he could to say, no, no, I'm actually gonna bridge this entire gap. It says, because of that, now let us approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Let me just read that one more time. We, this is who Jesus is and what he did, but we do this. And now let us approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. This great high priest of Jesus that Jesus did, the work that Jesus did ultimately on the cross, the work that the, the Magi had this epiphany for saying, this frankincense is for this priestly duty. The whole point is so that we as rebellious and broken sinful people who are being redeemed by God can ultimately live into the dream of Abraham that we would be God's people. He would be our God and we can boldly go into his throne room. We don't need to live in cower and fear. We don't need to lie down as dead. We want to because of our reverence, but we get to do that because we get to enter the throne room of God. We get to actually go into the presence of God. And often I'm, I'm blown away. I mean, I'm a pastor, this is my job, and I'm still blown away that, how do I not take advantage of that every day? 
I was joking with some friends of ours, some friends of mine, like, hey, five o'clock in the morning, we're going surfing, no problem. We can wake up like that. Up, oh, time for my quiet time in the morning? Well, it's kind of cold, I'm gonna stay in bed, right? Why would I not want to enter God's presence? Like, we just, we, we, we have access to God because Jesus is the great high priest. And how fun that we get to be people who get to access to Christ. And here's what's even more wild, that we actually are called by God through our faith in Jesus to be a kingdom of priests. So not only is Jesus the great high priest, he's inviting you and I to do the priestly duty, that we now get to stand in the gap between this God, this almighty, all-powerful, holy God, this holy, righteous God who has a heart for this broken world. And we have all these friends who are just broken and sinful and rebellious and could care less maybe but we get to now stand in the gap and we model Christ. We don't stand in the gap and judge those people. We stand in the gap offering God's goodness and grace and mercy and making a way so that someday maybe some of them may come and encounter Christ as well. So here are the Magi doing the ultimate epiphany, bringing gold because Jesus is the king, bringing frankincense because Jesus is the priest. And then the last, do you remember what, he, what the last one what was? The last spice? Myrrh. Same thing. I'm like, what is myrrh? I don't even know. Here's what's wild about myrrh. Myrrh is a spice that you actually somehow, through whatever process, ancient or people or people who know chemistry or people who are smart, not like me, what they can do is they can actually turn it into oil, sacred oil, oil that is used for anointing. Now, anointing in scripture is, set, is used for God's people to set people apart for God's work for God's holy work, right? So kings were anointed, prophets were anointed, and we know that Jesus is the ultimate prophet. And here is this anointing oil that was given to Jesus at his birth that he'd be anointed as the high prophet, the, the, the truest prophet. So think of all, of all the other prophets like Moses and all the prophets throughout all the Old Testament, right? God's invisible, and all these prophets are trying to express, this is who God is. This is God's character. This is what God's values. God, this is what God longs for you. This is what God wants for you to do. These are things that are going to happen in the future. This is, this is who God is and who God longs for you to be. This is what prophets did. And now Jesus is the ultimate prophet, right? Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've now seen the Father, and Jesus has said, listen, if you want to know what God is like, if you want to know what God's character is like, what God's values are like, what God's purpose is like, what God's plans are like, what God's teaching is like, Jesus said, then look to me. That's a pretty bold statement. That's kind of why, that's one of the reasons why Jesus got in really big trouble. But as Christians, that's what we believe, that Jesus is the ultimate prophet who ultimately reveals all of who Jesus is. Now, here's what's wild about myrrh. Myrrh is not just made for an anointing oil. It's a very specific kind of anointing. It's the kind of anointing that you put on a dead person before burial. It's part of the burial ritual. And what I think is so wild is when you look through scripture through this lens, you realize this holy God who deserves worship, who deserves all our affection, all of our attention, who, who should just own and rule the world with an iron fist, turns out to be this humble and gentle God who has just given himself over and over, even to the point of death. Be, the, the, the picture of this begins all the way back in Isaiah. In Isaiah 53, when they're pointing to say, this is the kind of Messiah that was going to come. This is the picture that, that Isaiah paints, starting in verse 4. Surely he took up our pain and he bore our sufferings. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. He was punished um, that brought us peace. Was, sorry, the punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds were healed. And it just goes on and on and on, painting this picture 
of the coming Messiah who is going to be someone who's going to take on our sin, take on our iniquity, who is going to be scorned by humanity. And then sure enough, Jesus shows up on the scene. Jesus, God's very own son, who never had a home, who never had an army, who never had riches, who never had wealth, and yet stood and was the high prophet, was the high priest, and now is the high king. And this is just the one last thing I want to I look at is in John chapter 34. Uh, you realize Jesus does a great job um, talking about, sorry, John 13. I think that's where we're at. Yeah. Um, John 13 verse 34 is that Jesus does such a great job presenting a picture of the Torah, of the law, of how Christians are supposed to live. And he always says, you've heard it say this and now this, and he always expands on it. But this is wild. This is Jesus saying, a new command I give you. Like to say a new command is pretty baller. Like it's one thing to say, hey, try this more, do this more, consider this. But to say a new command I give you, who gets to give commands? Well, God. And, and how do you know who God is? The prophet tells you who God is. And Jesus, this is, and Jesus could say any new command he wants. And what's the new command he gives? Love one another as I have loved you. Right? The Jewish Torah says, love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus doubles down, triples down, and says, no, no, you are to love, you're supposed to love one another the way that I have loved you. And how did Jesus love us? He died, he died for us. He laid down his life for us. He sacrificed for us. He was the ultimate servant. He washed our feet. He forgave our sins. So this God who deserves all worship calls us, his people, to model him. I love Philippians 2, right? Jesus, who in very nature was God, gave up all of his rights and privileges to the point of death. We as God's people get to follow him in that. And that is what epiphany is. I forgot the very last point, Andrea, sorry. There we go, yep. Oh, good, we're at the end. Who knew? So, so this is it at the end of the day, right? That we are invited to join with the Magi epiphany, these Gentile um, stargazers coming and proclaiming to the world that this little baby is the true king, is the true prophet, and is the great high priest. And we get to respond in worship. And what's so interesting is this, the response is, is not just singing, which singing is such a huge part of it. It's, this, it's, a, it's a full body um, act. We worship God with our head, we worship God with our heart, and we worship God with our hands. If Jesus is the king, then it actually takes some effort to understand in our head that we have to submit our life and our will. It's an act of will to submit ourselves to Jesus. Ooh, no one likes that. But if Jesus is the great high king and we want to worship him with our head, then we need to be willing to at least lean into, work on, try to, submit more and more of our will to Jesus. We also want to worship Jesus with our heart. And I love the picture of the fragrance that we get to share, like the way that the smoke rises up and pleases God with the scent that we in our heartfelt worship, we get to enter the throne of grace. And we have this heartfelt, not just in our head and our will, but in our devotion to Christ with our heart, with our emotion, with our singing, right? We're worshiping as priests. We're doing the priestly work. And ultimately that we also worship him with our hands, that the way that we know that our worship is true, that we've worshiped him, we've submitted our will, that we've also submitted our heart is now that our actions are going to match that as well, that we will be people who love one another the way that Jesus has loved us.
right? Jesus said that you will know that you're my disciples by the way you love one another. And that is what epiphany is. And so we're going to spend the rest of this morning singing two of my most all-time favorite worship songs. And we're going to lean into trying to um, recognize Jesus as our king and we're going to worship him and submit with him in our head. We're going to have a heartfelt devotion as we worship him in our heart. And we long to be transformed so that when we go home, we're a little bit nicer to our family and our kids and whoever our employer is, all those things so that we can begin to model Christ's love to one another. So why don't you stand with me and let me pray for us and then we'll continue and wrap up our morning in worship. Heavenly Father, our gracious God, I'm so thankful for how gentle you are to us. I'm thankful that we live in a time in history where we get to see the whole story arc, that we weren't just wandering, getting little nuggets, hoping to get the whole story, but because of this moment we happen to live in and because of all the faithful saints before us, we get the whole story. And so this morning as we celebrate Epiphany, I pray that it wouldn't just be a fun story in your scriptures, God, but it would be a story that points to you. It truly would be Epiphany that would reveal the true nature of the world. That you, Jesus, are the great high king. You're the one true prophet. And you're the greatest priest to make space for all of us to come and be in relationship with you. And the dream that you had for Abraham 2,000 years ago, we get to be part of that lineage to be your people and you get to be our God. So God, may you hear our worship. May you be pleased with your worship. May you continue to draw our hearts closer to you that we would be people who would more and more love you and worship you as our King. And all of God's kids said, amen and amen.